Bruno 1 Peter, and we're up to verse, or chapter 1, verse 17 to 21. Uh, we have recited together the first part of 1 Peter, and I'm going to pick up our passage in verse 10 just to remind us of that context again. Uh, so 1 Peter 1, 10 to 21, and then we will focus our time and energy on 17 to 21. It says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ is in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Holy Father, we call to you as our Father and Judge, as your Word has told us to. We are obedient children because Christ, through his death and resurrection, has made it so that we can be adopted into your household. Lord, may we conduct ourselves as holy. May this passage, which is incredibly practical for us, play out in our life. May it give us the how-to's of living a holy life in the midst of our exile, in the midst of our waiting for the promised land, the kingdom of heaven. May once again it build up our backbone, give us confidence in the truth of your word and the truth of the gospel. May the Holy Spirit clothe us so that we may understand the great mysteries of the gospel and apply them with wisdom to pra practically live them out in our life. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I told a story of Boniface, the monk who went into the Jamaic pagan empire and chopped down the oak of Thor with his axe in the name of Christ. He did it to emulate or reflect what Elijah did all those years ago when he stood before the prophets of Baal. We see this man take his axe to the oak of Thor and he chops it down in front of all the pagans and many of them bow the knee to Jesus, realizing that their God was mute, deaf and dumb in the response to Boniface. And taking the wood from this oak tree, they built a Christian, (coughs) sorry, (coughs) a Christian place of worship out of the tree. Whether it's in the time of Boniface or the time of Abraham in Canaan or Israel in Egypt or Elijah among the prophets of Baal or Daniel in Babylon, the people in this world are surrounded by idols. They are enslaved to them. In fact, you too were enslaved to idols at one point in your life. And at times in your Christian life, will find that you head back into the passions of your flesh, the futile ways, as Peter calls it in this scripture. We need to be incredibly aware of the idols of our age and we need to become shrewd and wise in dealing with them. Elijah, Abraham, Daniel, Boniface, Luther, Calvin were wise in the way and shrewd in the way they dealt with the idols of their time. They were men who were girding up the loins of their mind, which is what this phrase in verse 13 says, prepare your mind for action. The action is war. The girding of the loins, which is what other translations uh, translate verse 13 to, is to tie up your robes so that you don't stumble over what is foolish to stumble over your robes. If you're going to lose in battle, lose because you lost, not because you tripped over your robe. So gird up the loins of your mind, prepare your mind for action. The call of one Peter is to stand firm in the gospel against the unholy world with holiness. So the question is, church, are we ready for war? Have we been prepared for action and an action that is hostile towards holiness and an action that holiness is hostile towards wickedness. I love that we just sung Psalm 139 in full rather than just focusing on the nice uh, moment where it says, you've knitted me together in my mother's womb. That's a beautiful phrase and I love it, but we should can always continue that Psalm to read that it actually says that I hate those who hate you. I hate them with perfect hatred. If we truly love holy holiness, we will hate unholiness and the world is unholy. The world is wicked in the eyes of God. Of course, the gospel is what we take to the unholy world. The gospel is our defense and our attack. And as we go into, say, the marketplace using biblical language, Paul would go into the marketplace, city centers, uh, business centers, or government places, we will see idols all around us and we are to stand against them as holy people. 
But are these idols influencing and infiltrating the church more than the church is chopping down the idols of our time? If we take Hillsong as an example, what have they done to engage culture? They have become exactly like the world. They take a generation of adolescents and they mimic the music of the society and they infuse themselves into culture in order to change culture, but really all that's happening is they are being changed to be worldly. You've got Hillsong United, when that was no longer cool and it wasn't punk rock, it went to disco music, I don't know what it's really called, dance music, and they brought out Hillsong Young and Free. And they become like the world. And people aren't becoming like Christ in that. I will call out churches like Hillsong and people that are false teachers because Jude calls us to do so. It is false teaching. It is unbiblical. And they are not girding up the minds of their heart. uh, Sorry, they're not girding up the loins of their mind and being sober minded. Rather, they are becoming worldly, worldly minded. Remember, we looked last week that sober-mindedness was not just being uh, pure from uh, drugs and alcohol and other substances, but it was also being gospel pure. It was having a mind that was thinking about holy things, not unholy things. It was not polluting ourselves with things of this world. So we have to ask, as we read 1 Peter, is our holiness affecting the world around us? Or is the unholiness of the world around us affecting us? And if we are to gird up the loins of our mind, how are we to do that? Because 1 Peter is very practical. He gives us not only the ought to, you should be holy, but he gives us the how to. This is how you are holy. And this is the passage that we see in verse 17 to 21. How do I be holy as an exile in an unholy world? And his first point is call on him. Call on him. Call on the him who said just before, be holy for I'm holy. So the one that we are calling upon in verse 17 is the holy one who is calling his people to holiness. Now, holiness, of course, we repeat it over and over, and I want to keep repeating it so that it's in our head, is to be cut away or set apart. God is set apart from all things because he is not like anything in all of creation. He himself is not created and he himself is sufficient. He is cut away from the world. We, as his people, are to be cut away from the world. And in so doing, Peter says later in his, in his letter, we will be maligned because we do not participate in what the world participates in. We will be treated harshly. We will be mocked. We will be uh, abused. We will face trials of various kinds because we don't continue in unholiness. So the hymn that we are calling on is the one who rightfully and always is and always will be holy. If we want to be holy, we must call upon the one who is holy. We're doing this in the midst of our exile, which is in the time that the flesh clings so closely to us still. 
So in order to gird up the loins of our mind or prepare our mind for action and to be sober-minded of this uh, in our time is to be calling upon the one who is holy. If you are calling upon the unholiness of the world, you are going to be driven and moved by the world's ethics and the world's morals. You're going to define how do I love God by what the world tells us to love God. Or you're going to be defined how do I love my neighbor by the way the world, by the way the world uh, defines how we love our neighbor. But if we call upon him who is holy and calling us to be holy, we will then be those who are sober-minded and define the earth ethics and morality of this world by what God says, by what his word has described to us, by how his kingdom will be uh, what, how his kingdom will be lived out. To gird up the mind, the loins of our mind, to be prepared for action, prepared for war, is to call upon the Holy One in all things. To call upon the Holy One. And we don't just call to Him as someone who is distant, as one who is out of reach. We call on Him as a child calls to a father. In verse 17 it says, if you call on Him as father, Peter is, is giving us the how-to of to, to be holy as he is holy. You call on the Holy One, but you don't call on Him as a distant, absent, spiritual being. You call on Him as a Father, the most perfect of all fathers. Remember just a few verses before in verse 14, it said that we are obedient children and we've given up our former passions and ignorances. And we are obedient children because we have been adopted into the household of God. Therefore, we take on His name and we take on that household's status. We take on the biological child, Jesus, so to speak, righteousness and His actions. We don't bring anything to God. We don't say, God, I had a really good way of dealing with my children. I'm going to bring that into your kingdom. God says, no. Former ignorance, foolishness, futile ways, you bring nothing and I will show you how to live. We are girding up the loins of our mind by calling to the Holy One and calling Him Father, which puts God in the right place and us in the right place. It puts God as the authority. And this is really important. When we see the word Father in Scripture, it is stating that they have authority. A father in the scriptures was the ruler of the household. Ruler is the word that we see, father rule. So when we call out to God as father, we are saying, God, you are my authority. You are my ruler. I know that you are tender towards me. You are steadfast towards me, but I have a reverence for you. And you're inviting him to discipline you, instruct you and strengthen you. You stand in a position of a dependent child that says, I'm at your mercy, I'm in your hands for everything I need. Isaiah puts it like this, Isaiah 64.8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. 
And then he explains what this looks like. We are clay, you are our potter, we are all the work of your hands. Isaiah attributes fatherhood to creation. The father is the ruler and the authority. When we call him father, when we come to the Holy One and say, Father, we are saying, make me like you, form me to be like you, shape me, grow me and change me. We are calling on him to make our life holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. How do we do this? Call on Him as Father. Take on the identity as an adopted child of God and submit yourself to His teaching and bring nothing of your own former ignorance. He's not only Father, He is the judge. As the father of the household and under his father rule, this same verse continues on to say, and if you call on him, the Holy Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. He is also the judge and he judges impartially according to each one's deeds. I think this is really important. We live in an individualistic society and really a selfish society. And what we have an attitude of is that I have an understanding with God. The amount of people I meet that say, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm not like all those other Christians. I don't go to church. I don't do the usual Christian thing because me and God have a bit of an understanding. You and God don't have any understanding. If that is your position, I'm sure uh, and prayerfully God willing, there's no one here that has that position. But if it is, let, let you be rebuked and corrected that you do not have an understanding with God. God judged Abraham. God judged Moses. God judged David, Elijah and Peter. All who were in some ways had a bit of a deal with God, if you wanted to phrase it like that. But they still sat under the judgment of God. David was a man after God's own heart, remember, and God still judged him for his actions. God is not biased towards you. He's biased towards his holiness and his glory. And he will discipline you where necessary. You see, our actions do matter. We live by faith, we are saved by faith, but of course we cannot get past scriptures like this one right before us that says God is going to judge each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear. Or James, faith without works is dead. Or Paul, throughout all his letters, talks about our works. Because our works prove that we are born again. If we are born again, as it says right back at the beginning of 1 Peter 3, that he caused us to be born again, we don't stay as infants. In just a few verses time at the start of chapter 2, it will tell us that by pure spiritual milk, we will grow up into our salvation. A Christian doesn't stay a baby. 
a Christian's holiness, when it begins, is quite weak and very little. It's bound up, of course, in Christ, but their actions don't really reflect it. But as time goes on, if you sit under discipleship and you call on Him as Father, your holiness will grow. You'll be transformed. You'll become more like Christ. You'll put passions of your former ignorance behind you and your futile ways behind you and you'll take up God's holiness. And if we don't, we are either proving that our born-again status is false or we are in disobedience in which God will discipline us and draw us back to Him. They're the only two options. You're either not born again and still living in your flesh or you are being disciplined and going to be brought back to obedience. And with this, we are called to conduct ourselves with fear. If God is our Father who is holy and He is judge, we are recognizing who we are as His children and also as clay in the Creator's hand, and we live in a way of fear before God. We are putting God on the throne. The Reformers, John Knox being one of them, uh, referred to this as theocentric living, or God-centered living. Living before the throne of God, or living before the eyes of God. If we believe that God is our Father, our Judge, who is holy, and we believe what's coming in this passage, that we were brought in through the death of Christ, we will live in reverent awe of Him. Our position will be that of a beggar, like blessed is the poor in spirit, who has nothing in their hands to bring. And there's a sense of trembling in awe of God. The fear is of offending and disappointing and misrepresenting. A fear born out of reverence through our adoption. And there's so many examples of how Israel throughout their history did not fear God. Although they were meant to call Him Father, they didn't fear Him or put Him in the place that they should have. Though they saw His strong right hand deliver them out of Egypt, they still wandered away. And Jeremiah 3, 19-20 says this and shows us it. It says, I said... God speaking to Israel, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all to all the nations. And I thought you would, be, I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A person who is born again calls to the Holy God as Father, recognizes that He is the judge who sits on the throne and lives their life before Him as if He's uh, knowing that He sees all. Israel was invited in and didn't call Him Father and turned away from following Him and acted as an adulterous wife. We are the new Israel, which is what the therefore means in verse 13. 
The prophets spoke concerning about the salvation of the Christ to us, for you, for the church. Has the church wandered off into rebellious living like Israel? As exiles, are we not setting our hope on future graces and not being set apart from the world, but rather trying to change the world by becoming like the world, which makes no sense from God's perspective? Because what Peter does here is then builds weight on how we were brought in. He gives us the gospel. And he wants us to realize just how weighty it is that we have been brought in. And the reason we can call God Father is because there has been a ransom paid. And it's not by silver and gold, but it's by something so much more precious. So in verse 18, we see the gospel presented to the church to give them confidence to call on him as Father. And to give them confidence to live holy lives that are set apart from the world and cut off from worldly living. Knowing, verse 18, that you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your father. You were ransomed. You were brought out of your futile ways. The word ransomed here is referring to slavery. You were enslaved to sin. You were enslaved to the father of lies, Satan. You were bound. You were like a man who had sold his field because of debt or like Naomi who had lost her husband and sons and had land but could not possess it in that day until she had a redeemer. Yet she was old and wasn't able to have a redeemer. Our futile ways were like a land we couldn't own or like the chains of our feet chains on our feet of slavery or like the whips on our back. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, anyone, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. Practices sin. That's doing any sort of sin. If you do that, you're a slave to it. You cannot stop it yourself. Slavery is no joke. Now, often in the scriptures, particularly in our modern translations, we've, loved, we've changed the word to servant. We've become servants. But slavery is really the weighty word that is there. Slavery is what Israel was in Egypt. And how much did it cost to bring out Israel from slavery? Well, the destruction of a nation. The destruction of a nation brought out Israel from slavery. Through the death, eventually, of the firstborn in the whole nation what do we see Peter go on to say that we didn't have silver and gold like Boaz redeeming Ruth but the precious blood of Christ so gird up your mind and call on the holy God as father who judges and has enabled you to call on him because he has ransomed you from your futile ways in which you were enslaved to and made you a child in his household. 
He's taken you from slavery, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of His Son and made you not a slave in His household, but a child. The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, is of course referring to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Christ was to be the final sacrifice. Christ was to be the blood of the lamb that was painted over the doorposts of the house of the Israelites in Egypt so that when the angel of death passed over, it did not touch their houses. It moved over the top of them and went and destroyed the firstborns of Egypt. Yet Jesus is the firstborn of God and he is a lamb without blemish, speaking of his holiness, speaking of his righteousness. He had no deceit, no futile ways, no passions of his former ignorance. He was forever holy and it was through his blood that, that we have been brought in to call him Father. Acts 20, 28 Speaking of to the elders of the church about guarding the church, he says that the church is so precious to God because he obtained it with his own blood. He obtained it with his own blood. The consideration of our redemption ought to be a consistent and powerful inducement to holiness and the fear of God. What Peter is doing is putting us in a place to ponder how we have come to the place that we have come to. How are you allowed to call God Father? Remember, Jesus died on the cross because he called God Father. They said it was blasphemy. The Jews wanted to put him on the cross, wanted to kill him because he blasphemed that he was calling him Father. And now we are being charged to call on the Holy God as Father Because the precious blood of Christ has claimed us. And this, Peter says, was the plan before you or anything else was ever created in verse 20. He was foreknown. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter isn't done exalting God, the triune God. He's exalting the majesty of God to the church and he's saying there is a mystery that is so profound that it's worth your pondering. The precious Savior of your life was ordained before the foundation of the world. The everlasting God in everlasting ordained that he would have a people redeemed from sinful slavery to be his children and it would happen by the death of the second member of the Trinity, Jesus, and his resurrection. In God's sovereignty, he planned history. He planned history. He placed the prophets at the time that they were placed for the sake of us, the church, and he placed Jesus at the exact right time to end the Jewish age and start the Christian age of the church. It says, in these last times. 
Of course, often we refer to the end of time when we think of this phrase, but it's speaking of the end of the Jewish age. Just like there was an age for the judges of Israel and the age for the kings of Israel, or the age of Egypt's reign or the age of Babylon's reign, reign, all these ages came to an end. And the Jewish age is coming to an end when the New Testament was being written. It came to an end when the destruction of the temple was complete. It started coming to an end when Jesus died on the cross and the veil in the temple was torn in two. Jesus came at the exact right time that the people by faith, as it was in the Old Testament and as it will be in the New, will be saved. Not by lineage or blood, not by who your forefather was, but whether you had faith like Abraham had faith, like David had faith, like Daniel had faith, or like the apostles had faith in the Saviour Jesus. That is how you will call on God who is Father. Call on God as Father. So brothers and sisters, because you are here now, because you have been brought into God's household through the precious blood of Jesus, Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober-minded. Be done with the world and worldly ethics and worldly morality. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought in the end, the kingdom of God and His perfect kingdom, seeing Him face to face. In the time of your exile, conduct yourself in a way that is set apart, cut off from this world. By calling on God as Father and knowing how you came to be free from your slavery at the cost of the blood of Christ. Take confidence in the fact that this was planned from the beginning. That this church in this time was planned from the beginning to be founded in Christ and to last as long as Christ would have it. So thinking back to Boniface or Elijah or Moses, thinking to our time practically, are we ready for war? Are we ready to stand against unholiness in this world? More than just speaking the gospel in times of quiet and easy conversations, but being in a place that stands against culture, being appalled at the fact that churches have got rainbow stairs painted on them, or that there is even anything such as a Pride Month in our calendar year. These are the things we should stand against as Christians, openly stand against. And Peter has given us a reason to have a backbone because we were saved by the precious blood of Christ. Peter's going to keep calling us to this. In our own life, our personal holiness, our holiness in our household, the holiness in the household of the church and our holiness in a world that will malign us for our holiness.
He's calling us to stand up and he's calling us to take charge and to stand against in our exile. Let's pray. Holy Father, we call on you as judge who who judges impartially. Lord, let us know that your standard has been written. Your law is clear. That those who practice sin are slaves to sin and the only means of being released from that slavery is through the precious blood of Christ. You have caused us to be born again. And in that new life, Lord, that you have given us, you call us to holiness. May we call on you as Father, the Holy One. Be our authority. Discipline us, instruct us, and strengthen us, Lord. We are exiles here, but we are elect for this time. May we take charge from those, the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, and in faith would we stand up with confidence on the only truth that there is, the truth of your word. And will we see the idols fall in our age as your church stands against them. Pray for your kingdom come, for your kingdom to come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.